Coming up on This Week in Games, Sony drops a massive PS5 reveal, The Last of Us 2 makes the push to modern game design, and WB Games is reporting looking for buyers at a pricey $4 billion. Coming up This Week in Games. It's that time of the week for your video game industry news rundown. I'm your host, Eric McConnell, and I hope everyone enjoyed my guest co-host last week. I'm planning on having, you know, more and more people come in and provide other points of views in the future, so stay tuned. However, this week was a massive news week, multiple big stories. I thought about having another co-host, couldn't possibly have another co-host now. Um, The amount of news uh, that dropped, especially the big story Friday, um the podcast would turn out and be two to three hours if we really had back and forth conversations that were meaningful over all these news stories. Sorry, everyone. Um, it's just going to be me rambling because there's a lot to get through. So first up, PS5 had a big reveal event after the cancellation of E3 and another short delay in respects to the protest ongoing around the world. So the PS5's out, um, I guess, visually. The console looks sleek. I appreciate you know, Sony taking chances with the white uh, colors theme when the PS2, PS3, and PS4s were all black. The controller was revealed a while ago, but still looks impressive. Um, I won't go over specs. You can look those up and break those down to what these mean from a technical standpoint. Not really the point of this podcast. Um, one of the biggest surprises was the inclusion of a camera. I don't think it's bundled with the PS5. I think it's separate, but In the peripherals department, there's a controller, charging dock, headphones, a remote control, but the camera is a surprise to me, you know. Haven't they connected and PlayStation PlayStation I failed enough? Um, Why a camera again? And uh, for what feels like the third generation in a row trying to integrate visual computing into home consoles, it just hasn't really worked in the past. I don't see it working now. The only reason I can think of... uh, including the cameras for live streaming on Twitch, but I imagine most of the people who do that are professionals or most of the successful live streamers use custom setups and not like Sony provided camera attachments for the PlayStation. You know, the PlayStation 4 has the immediate Twitch uh, stream button or like capture this and send it to YouTube, that type of stuff built into it. Maybe they're going after this market, but again, like if you're a professional or you're successful, you're kind of likely rolling your own kit. You know, another somewhat surprise, um, but not really, was the all digital version. Um, Xbox, you know, has been rumored for many years now to do discless Xboxes in the future. Uh, I guess Sony followed suit. At this point, I no longer buy physical discs myself. I absolutely hate it when I go and work at companies and they give me physical discs for games I need to play for like research or, you know, competitive analysis. The digital edition is slightly slimmer as it doesn't have the Ultra HD Blu-ray player and will likely be sold at a lower price point because the Xbox Series X's digital-only version is sold at a lower price point. So a bunch of game trailers were dropped, including two Insomniac titles, making that $229 million price tag Sony purchased the studio for back in August seem like a steal, really, considering the two Insomniac titles were arguably the best games revealed. So we have Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart, which really was the technical showcase on how fast assets can be loaded straight into gameplay on the PlayStation 5. It features the titicular character going through wormholes. Each wormhole kind of leads to a single 
separate gaming trope from everything from cyberpunks to pirates and you know ratchet interacts with the characters in those briefly and so it's kind of just showing like oh look you can load up an entire like residential area and then a cyberpunk area and then a pirate area and then a fantasy area and you can just keep loading these super fast no load times it's awesome by ps5 there's also a new spider-man game star starring miles morales it looked great um looked like it you know, just looked like a quality insomniac title a great follow-up to the standalone title a year or two ago and i'm personally most excited about resident evil 8 i really like the new direction resident evil is going in with like the atmospheric evil and scare after a number you know resident evil 4 is an amazing groundbreaking game and then they kind of lost themselves with five and six kind of making these action you know action games and then seven i didn't play it because i don't really care to play vr games but had a great reviews from people I talked to. Eight looks amazing. And I also thought Pragmata was interesting. You know, I really like uh, games that look like they're trying to do interesting new things. It was hard during the game reveals to tell if everything was actually gameplay. Some games clearly looked worse than others. <laughs> and I I couldn't tell if like the games that looked worse weren't 100% polished or the other games weren't 100% truthful as to what constitutes gameplay. Knowing the game industry, we have to go with the latter, that the the games that look too good to be gameplay maybe were too good to be gameplay, but let's all just assume everyone's telling the truth for now. I mean, this is going to come out later this year, so there's no, no reason to go on Reddit and have giant arguments and discussions. The big thing I'm looking for is now the price of the two consoles and also the price of a single game. I think now's the time for games to be priced differently at different ranges. Even games going up into the 70, 80, or 90 US dollar range for tip-top premium games. Like, Otherwise, we're going to continue to see games being sold at $60 and then them nickel and dime you with in-app purchases in the $60 single-player experience to really recoup the development and marketing costs of those games. Just sell it at $80. Like, I know it sucks. Everyone's going to gripe about it, but we're all going to feel better getting a complete game at $80 than to continue to have like day one DLC in-app purchases in the single-player game and other nonsense that, God, just sucks. Um, I expect, you know, just guessing the consoles will probably be in the 350 to 450 range, maybe the digital version at 350, maybe the, you know, disc version at 450. That would be my guess. 500's a lot. Like, that's a big jump to launch a console at, at the 500 range. And I just don't see them selling consoles at the 300 range because that would be massive losses, I have to imagine. All right, next up. I, I normally don't review games on here. Um, no one tunes into this for games. I think this is like somewhat important is what happened with The Last of Us 2. So The Last of Us 2 reviews are now coming out for the game. It kind of like it questions game designs and how reviews are done. So... We all played The Last of Us, or at least know about it. It's a bleak, apocalyptic game. The sequel's out. Seems like the same fate that eventually caused people to question the Uncharted games, a game where, like, good guy Indiana Jones-type character murders tons of people, has now plagued The Last of Us 2. The Last of Us 2 is, like... I, I watched a lot of reviews on it. Um, it really, like, is bleak realism, where, like, murder is the answer to every problem, and... It hits hard in where today's culture and kind of zeitgeist is right now. You know, it plays up very divisive moments. Like, according to, like, a lot of reviews, it forces you to kill dogs and QTE events and then plays cutscenes 
showing you playing fetch with that same dog you just killed, like, clearly divisive, clearly, like, you know, over-the-top, like, hammering messages into your head. The game also suffers dearly from the public's, like, changing mindset on violence in the world because the game centers around violence and the worst of humanity, like, warring factions, bigotry, constant murder... I don't normally cover this, but it really, like, made me want to, like, yearn for large-budget games that develop gameplay around more than just killing in combat. Like, The Last of Us could have been so many things. It could have been managing resources in the community, getting communities to come together, telling all these different types of story, and instead just, like, settles for, like, you know, characters stealthing around and murdering people with, like, knives, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's like we're still here. We're still making murder simulators. We're still making divisive things that, you know, maybe like a 13-year-old might find it like, oh my god, I just killed the dog, and here's me playing fetch with it. I can't believe this is the circle of life. You know, but like me as an adult, I just roll my eyes, you know, looking at all this stuff. It brings up questions of reviews, too. And so The Last of Us 2 has a 96 Metacritic by nearly all major publications, giving it like 100 or whatever equivalent of 100 out of 100 is. A lot of honest reviews, however, say that there's a problem because Naughty Dog made them sign it. An embargo on the last 12 hours of the game, which I won't spoil the storyline. You can find it actually mostly complete online. But the last 12 hours make the game. And it's I think it's like a 30-hour game, maybe 25-hour game. So you're talking about the last half of the game they can't talk about, right? But they have to write reviews and give it a score. And these publications are pressured to do this because they know their competitors are going to just give it a score anyways. And then if they come out late, you know, they don't get any clicks and ads. So it's really like a shitty move by Naughty Dog because a lot of the reviewers were, you know, effectively like the last 12 hours will ruin the review and I can't talk about them in any way or show you what they consist of in any way. I don't know. It's 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 really like not it makes me question what what's the point of game reviews if you can't talk about half the game? Who are these reviewers that are giving it a hundred out of a hundred every time? What are their qualifications? And then it makes me also question like where do reviews come in? Because Naughty Dog technically is tip top studio, right? Naughty Dog competes with Rockstar and Valve and other people for technically the best studio out there like they're the top tier of technicality in the studio but when they make poor game design and story choices and then force reviewers not to actually address those game design and story choices in their reviews it kind of like leads to the worst marketing I've ever seen where like the reviewers are just forced to be like well this is a beautiful game the combat works everything's gorgeous the creating the worlds is amazing and then you can't actually address the problems in the game and it's it just makes me want to question what we're doing with game reviews and what we're doing with marketing through the reviews, how the pressure is on publications, and how can we fix this in the future? Because I guarantee you when the game comes out, you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about, and you're going to understand why this is such a big issue for them to falsify the game reviews in the way they did. All right, next big story. Riot Games continues to define professional leadership as global head of consumer products. Ron Johnson resigns after posting discouraging marks on Facebook. So really makes you question, is there a company with as much culture problem as Riot? Like this is a company that goes far and beyond what, you know, a normal company would do to outwardly project diversity and inclusion 
they try to have like all their champions re represent different races and cultures and genders and you know everything they possibly could different silhouettes of characters they try to have the widest variety of stuff they outwardly project diversity and inclusion and then yet culturally at the executive level they have what <laughs> seem to be the broiest of bro cultures you'll ever see at a game company like from claims of gender discrimination to accusation of c-suite employees farting on each other and tapping each other in the balls and lots of other stuff that you would find at a usc frat house well riot has another exec in hot water ron johnson posted on facebook a rather deaf post uh johnson is global head of consumer products at riot which i have no idea what that title actually means at a gaming company global head of consumer products i guess i don't know like well, <laughs> Is he like the top product manager? Then he makes sense. I won't go into the post because I don't feel it's necessary to repeat it here. It really doesn't do anything. I don't want to like, I don't feel like repeating it. There's a link in the show notes. Pretty tone deaf. You can read it yourself. It has nothing to do with this story. Now, when there's a worldwide culture defining event going on, like the current protests on policing and race in America and then broader context, the rest of the world. 99% of the time, it is better to listen and educate yourself than it is to express whatever gut jolt feeling you have. Like, if you want to post something about the protest, think long and hard about it. Research both sides of whatever argument you claim you're making, and then sit on your post for at least a week before actually posting it. You likely won't want to post whatever crazy idea floated in your head at that moment a week later, and the world would have likely moved on the discussion and what the news is has probably evolved from there. You know, for most of the world, this is a listen and learn moment, a time to develop empathy and not to make a stand on a half thought out post on Facebook. Right. And Riot, get your shit together. Like, this is embarrassing. You're one of the top game companies in the world. I don't know what else to say. Like, the, it seems like every six months there's a story of another Riot executive and some other crazy thing going on and some other ill thought out like post or thought. Don't want to see any more stories of Riot executives like embarrassing themselves in the game industry like this pop up in a wider news format. All right, next story. This is the big one for me this week uh, for obvious reasons. CNBC reports that AT&T is seeking a buyer for WB Games at a $4 billion price tag. So to me, this is clearly a strategic leak by either WB or AT&T. Um, CNBC reported two, they had two sources for this story. Clearly, strategic sources at that. AT&T doesn't want to foot the bill on the thousands of developers and employees under WB Games banner. The last job I had before becoming an independent game developer that I am now was at WB Games in their central product management org, which was part of their central publishing org. Um, I really want to do at some point a long podcast or a blog post on my very short stint there. That's kind of a warning for everyone else on for what and who to avoid in this game industry, but I will try to be as objective as I can in covering this. Let's start with what is WB Games. So WB Games is under the WB Interactive Entertainment and consists of really two IP, which is Mortal Kombat and Scribblenauts, a long list of games that are published and developed by these by a bunch of studios, which include mobile titles from Game of Thrones Conquest and Golf Clash to console titles like Shadow of Mordor and the Arkham series, as well as like you know, Mortal Kombat and Injustice. Under WB Games, there's 12 to 15 different studios, depending on what you consider a fully formed game studio, like the definition of a game studio to you. I say 12 to 15. 
WB Games does not own the IP they make games for outside of Mortal Kombat. So WB Games doesn't own Harry Potter DC characters or Cartoon Network characters or anything else like that. And also, as far as the public, as far as publicly known, doesn't own the game rights to those IP either. So the right to make a Batman game isn't owned by WB Games, but it's under a different part of Warner Media. So in my opinion, the value of WB Games is mostly tied up in the Mortal Kombat IP. After that, a buyer is getting the aggregated talent of the top studio. So the top studios with the most aggregated talent is NetherRealm Studios, who makes Mortal Kombat, Rocksteady, who makes the Arkham series, and Monolith, who made Fear and Shadows of Mordor. And then the other thing a buyer is getting is whatever recurring revenue is coming from Game of Thrones Conquest, Golf Clash, and Harry Potter's Wizards Unite, which the Harry Potter game is co-owned by Niantic. So that slice of like the revenue pie is even smaller. There are other studios um, within WB Games. I don't think they're talented enough to be considered assets. And this is my humble opinion, but like they don't produce games that have differentiated graphics or gameplays that other studios aren't already don't do 10x better. Like it's not to say that they aren't talented studios, but they're not rainmakers. You know, they don't make games that rain money. They don't produce graphics or gameplay to the level that really NRS, Rocksteady, or Monolith can produce. And although they produce games and some of them like produce games that make tons and tons of revenue for low development costs, it's still not what I consider an asset because other studios could fill that role arguably better. And these three studios are kind of like the more shining flagship studios of WB Games, in my opinion. So why would AT&T want to sell WB Games? So with all the studios and central teams, there's a lot of costs. A lot of studios haven't produced or announced a game in the last two to three years. And even when they did release games, they were sequels off of previous titles. Like many of the studios have been writing long, long stretches where they had one successful title and then continue to make sequels off of that one title and that one engine for many years. The Arkham series stretched nine years. Mortal Kombat and Justice stretched nine years. The Lego series predated WB Games. I mean, I think that goes back to PS2 days, right? A lot of these weren't new IP either, so they had to divvy up revenue among Warner Media. So this is an example of made-up numbers, but if a Batman game is made by WB Game Studio, and that game made $100 million, maybe $20 million goes to DC. Maybe $30 million goes to the platform holder like PlayStation or Apple or whoever. Maybe five to $10 million goes to third-party tools or libraries, like if you use Unreal, if you use uh, Havoc, Physics Engine or something. Then take marketing and development costs, which could be as high as $50 million. And the piece left over for WB Games and the game studios, really small, like not great because... They don't own the IP, they don't own the platform, and like a lot of money gets taken off here and there, and the games cost a lot to make. And this is just an example of made-up numbers, but you get the idea of how IP impacts net profits for a division like WB Games within a giant company like Warner Media or AT&T. So according to CNBC, AT&T is $165 billion in debt, so cutting unprofitable divisions is the easiest thing they can do, because WB Games has its studios use Warner Media IP instead of creating their own IP. So those games are somewhat worthless as an asset because the real underlying IP isn't there. So unless the game has strong recurring revenue numbers, like a Game of Thrones Conquest, which every month is going to make you millions of dollars, those games are useless because 
you know, you could always rebundle the Arkham series, but the Arkham series has already been sold and rebundled many times. So you're not going to re-release like, you know, Arkham Asylum as a game, as a game asset isn't worth that much. Because even if you re-release it on PS5, you'd have to upscale the graphics, port it, all this stuff, and still give cuts to that DC, like, prop, like that DC organization within Warner Media. So those games aren't worth a lot. And that's what I mean when really the money is in Mortal Kombat, the recurring revenue, and maybe some of the aggregated talent at the studios. And so that's why Mortal Kombat is arguably the most valuable asset of all of WB games, because the other studios are known for making games to service one or media IP, so they don't have anything worth more than the initial box sales of the games. And then lastly, who would buy WB games? So the CNBC report states, Take-Two Interactive, Electronic Arts, and Activision Blizzard are potential buyers. I can't honestly see Activision Blizzard even bothering to purchase WB Games. They would, Activision Blizzard would probably love NRS and Mortal Kombat, but Blizzard is producing counters and moats to defend against Riot Games, and Activision is trying to figure out how to divest, divest, divest away from the Call of Duty series and to other different IPs and other areas. It's not a time to take on 12 to 15 new studios that don't meet the same quality that Treyarch, Infinity Ward, and Sledgehammer produce for Activision already. You know, it doesn't make sense to me. EA uh, certainly doesn't want more studios right now. They're trying to spread talent between Respawn and Dice LA and spin up like a new 100-person studio at Dice LA. I seriously doubt they'd want to take on 12 to 15 more studios for the same reason Activision Blizzard doesn't want to. Take-Two is interesting. Um, Take-Two's market cap is sitting slightly above $15 billion. So $4 billion purchase is in the realm of possibility, but would likely be mostly in debt raise. Take-Two has their golden children of Rockstar Games and NBA 2K keeping the company, you know, pretty profitable. However, Take-Two is likely not to be a contender because they already promised us 93 games in the next few years. Maybe those 93 games included WB Games. Maybe this was all wrapped up before um, their CEO made this big promise. Maybe not. Like, if you're going to do 93 games and that didn't include WB Games, I, I doubt you want WB Games on top of those 93 games you promised over the next five years. All right. So who do I think maybe should or <laughs> should buy WB Games or could? Uh, here's a few dark horses nobody's talking about. Tencent. First of all, Tencent could easily buy WB Games. They seem to have infinite money at this point. I don't know if they stole like a money printing machine from the U.S. Treasury, but they have infinite money and could really reshape the 12 to 15 studios that WB Games has into first-party Tencent EU and North American studios. They've recently hired top talent. These studios could support that talent. The negative is Tencent is still China-centric in their choices. Um, meaning that they only really invest in stuff that they think has a chance in China to be released and successful. I don't see Mortal Kombat becoming a Chinese hit because it's really like half of it's a homage to 70s and 80s kung fu movies, and the other half is insane violence and gore. Those two things are things that I don't see Chinese regulate game regulators probably not approving for the Chinese market. So with Mortal Kombat being most of the value of WB Games, and Mortal Kombat likely getting approved in China, I don't see Tencent buying them. Also, a lot of these companies are console-centric, also something that isn't successful in China. Um, the consoles, outside of Nintendo's recent release, the consoles aren't really a thing in China. It's mainly mobile and PC. All right, next up, Google. Google's trying to kickstart three AAA studios 
with overpriced Silicon Valley talent. There isn't a person alive that thinks Google is going to make and develop a hit game in-house, especially looking at how Amazon Game Studios is doing. Google could instantly make Stadia a contender by having all WB games exclusive to the platform. $4 billion is really, for a terrible analogy, a fart in the wind for the monopoly revenue that Google has and a check they could just write without even thinking. So $4 billion could get Google really into the game industry. We'll have to see. Finally, Microsoft, a little probably less likely. Microsoft is likely looking to push for studios that can produce cutting-edge graphics for their new consoles. However, they need content. Like Sony just announced 26 titles for the PlayStation 5 that they had dropped with the reveal. And most analysts are already stating based on proxy metrics that the PS5 is slated to well outperform the Xbox Series X in sales. But having a number of WB games exclusive to it and Mortal Kombat under your console as an exclusivity could sway those numbers for Microsoft. And again, for Microsoft, $4 billion is nothing. It's like a sneeze, really. Um, finally, let's look at how much I think WB Games is worth. So I'm no financier. I'm not a person who knows what they're doing when I talk about this crap. Like, I have no experience in working in merger and acquisitions. I only cover merger acquisitions and fundraising on This Week in Games. I've been doing it for three years, so these wild guesses are based on what I see kind of like other companies being bought for. So for game assets, I'd price the combat of the combo of Mortal Kombat IP, recurring revenue for Game of Thrones Conquest, Golf Clash, and partial ownership of Harry Potter Wizards Unite at 1.5 billion. Could be as high as 2 billion depending on really what the bottom line recurring revenue numbers are from those three mobile titles, but I think 1.5 billion is a pretty good healthy uh, estimate. Mortal Kombat hasn't been bigger like it's as big as it is it's like almost as big as it was in the 90s with Mortal Kombat 1 and 2 and the other titles still do well like Game of Thrones Conquest is still up in the top 100 grossing games for studios you have to price NRS around 250 million like I see them as an insomniac level studio they can produce top of the line games they look gorgeous um Great talent. Then it comes to what to make of the rest. Monolith hasn't produced anything after the less than stellar Shadows of War, but they did make fear back in the day. You know, their own IP it was really successful, especially the first one. Rocksteady is talented, but again, severely tied to the Batman IP. The rest of the studios are at either mid-level or worse. I, and I sound mean saying this. this is just me wildly guessing from the outside. I'm I'm just a person. Who knows? So maybe all together, the talent aggregated at those studios maybe 600 million, but then you're going to have to like tie the talent down with the merger because there's nothing stopping, you know, you buying out NRS and everyone quitting, right? So you have to figure out how to get the talent with the purchase. So for WB Games, maybe, I don't know, my rough back in the napkin estimate is 2.1 billion. That would be you would buy all of WB Games for $2.1 million. You would have massive layoffs. You would merge studios. You would merge talent into what whoever's buying it's existing studios. But again, what do I know? I don't even read the 10 Qs that come with quarterly earnings. So it's just a wild guess on my part. All right, that's it for WB Games. Let me go through the other fundraising news really fast, and that'll be it for this week in games. Wave, a, a virtual concert platform, raises $30 million in a Series B. So... Wave is hoping to ride the success of Fortnite concerts featuring DJ Marshmello and Travis Scott by catapulting their virtual interactive concert platform into mainstream success. 
Wave is hoping that the 30 million will continue their growth by allowing them to work with popular labels and artists to create one-of-a-time experiences digitally. As a person who's been to a lot of concerts in their life, um, it doesn't really do anything for me to watch concerts at home. It's more like I go to concerts to feel the music and energy of being there rather than actually hearing the concert and seeing the performers perform, if that makes sense. However, I'm completely out of touch with today's youth, so this could possibly be the next big thing. Like, who knows? I'm not I'm not 15 anymore, so maybe kids really want virtual concerts instead of attending them in person. Who knows? All right, next up, Playable Worlds raises $10 million in a Series A. So Playable Worlds is creating a cloud-native sandbox MMO led by famed MMO designer Ralph Koster of Ultima Online and Star Wars Galaxy fame. The studio has just secured a $10 million Series A after a $2.7 million seed round. I'm personally a big fan of Ralph Koster in that I love hearing him speak, hearing his thoughts on game design and game development. I definitely don't always agree with what he has to say, but I definitely listen when he talks. The Series A was led by Galaxy Interactive's EOS VC Fund with Bitcraft Esports also chipping in, two very powerful gaming VCs that you hear their names on here very often. The money will be used to push the game development, uh, the development that they're at into production and make key strategic hires to create this MMO. Mostly, I'm just all around curious to see how this talented team tackles what they call like the next iteration of what an MMO can be in games. So just all around interested in uh, playable worlds, talented team, probably going to do some cool stuff. Next up, streaming platform Boom.TV raises $10 million in a Series A of their own. Boom.TV describes itself as an all-in-one community tournament streamer esports platform. It's a mouthful. Um, From their website, quote, Boom.TV helps organizers big and small register players build tournaments, track scores, and broadcast competitive games, end quote. The Series A will be put towards efforts to attract viewers and players to influencer-driven events and possibly create new original content. Surprise, surprise, the Series A was let by Bitcraft Esports Ventures, who I just mentioned above, who also just did another $10 million Series A, so they're on quite the roll. Um, Though in a recent talent lockup by Mixer, YouTube, Twitch, and Facebook, I don't really know where a non-monopoly-backed streaming platform plays. Like, where where can Boom.TV go when all the influencers are tied up in these four other companies that have unlimited piggy banks. Curious to see how you work around that <laughs> boom.tv, but you know, like I, I, I always cheer for the little guy. So I hope you really destroy Twitch and Mixer and YouTube and Facebook because, you know, God knows they need competition. All right, last but not least, this one's weird. Gambling platform Luckbox closes a 3.8 million investment round. So gameindustry.biz reports the company that allows real-time esports betting on 13 titles across PC and mobile has closed another investment round. This second investment round was the result of an oversubscription of their initial round, and Luckbox plans to IPO soon after this. I have nothing really positive to say about offshore esports betting. Like, esports players don't make that much money, and esports leagues aren't exactly as secure as the NFL, NBA, NHL, and these other major pro leagues, so... The players have all the incentives possible to bet on offshore betting platforms and throw matches and make 10x the money that they would have made actually winning whatever random you know match they're in. I can't confidently say esports betting 
should be encouraged at this moment because of everything I just stated. All right, long episode, guys. Uh, that's it for this week in games. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Also, leave me a comment. Let me know how I'm doing. You can email me at eric at thisweekingames.com. If you have any comments or suggestions on future episodes, And lastly, please check the show notes for any stories that you heard on today's episode. That's it for this week in games. I'm Eric McConnell. Long episode, a lot to go through. Hope you guys came away with better, different, more unique point of view. Maybe not. I'll be back next week to do it all over again. Take care, guys.